0: Lexus of Lexington Home of the best-selling Lexus IS Find yours today at LexusOfLexington.com Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com Featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith Not just a profile picture For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com for faith, fellowship, and love.
1: Welcome to Connecting the Dots. I'm your host, Mark Shea, and we are here this time, as we are here every time, to talk about life, the universe, and everything from a Catholic perspective. And today, I am glad to have on the show uh, a friend of mine, uh, uh, a guy I, I met when I was in Dublin uh, some years back. Gosh, it's about 10 years ago now. Uh, his name is Greg Daly. He is uh, an assistant editor uh, on the Irish Catholic newspaper, born and lives in Dublin, Ireland, uh, along with spending several years as a barman and a teacher. All Irishmen should be barmen at one time or another. Um, he studied in Dublin uh, and in Manchester, England. He's the author of Cannae, the uh, Experience of Battle in the Second Punic War which sounds like a really interesting book to me. It's the first ever book-length study of the experience of combat in any ancient battle. And uh, he drifted from the faith in his teenage years, returned to it in his 20s. Uh, while he was in England, he became a member of the Catholic Voices Media Group, uh, and occasionally contributed to the Irish Catholic, uh, spent a few months as, the, as a Dominican novice. Yay, Dominicans! I go to a Dominican parish. Uh, and then he, he walked the Camino. He's he's done the full Catholic thing, you know. Uh, and then he became a UK and Ireland correspondent for Alatea, uh, and then joined the staff of the Irish Catholic. And so he's been reporting. He's been reporting for the Irish Catholic. Also wrote a book called "1916: The Church and the Rising" uh, for Americans uh, ignorant of Irish history. Uh, the Easter Rising in 1916 was. Uh, Really when uh, the Republic of of Ireland uh, really got its shot at uh, independence from, (laughs) in every sense of the word, uh, independence from Ireland. I've actually, uh, when I was there in, uh, must have been 2006, I I got, uh, I, I walked through Dublin. Uh, I was taken on a walk through through Dublin, and we walked past the post office, which is still has the bullet holes, machine gun bullet holes, lovingly preserved uh, from the British machine guns that were fired at the uh, at the post office. That was sort of the nerve center of the of the Easter Rising. Um, anyway, uh, all of that is to say, uh, please welcome uh, uh, Greg Daly uh, to Connecting the Dots. How are you doing, Greg? i'm good
2: mark i'm good Should good.
1: good and you i am doing very well um we are we are savoring our our rare summer moments here in washington washington has a climate that is exactly like the irish climate <laughs> uh it, it rains a lot we have a lot of uh soft days here as as the irish say and uh, so when it gets warm uh we we Grab at it with both hands and uh, clutch it to our breasts with gratitude. So, uh, I spent the day yesterday at the lake swimming. I'll, I'm going to see if I can figure out a way to talk my wife into doing that again this evening. So, what's what's uh, what's going on in Ireland these days? You just had the huge uh, uh, repeal the eighth referendum, uh, and you are you're awaiting a visit from the Pope.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a strange time. We're between these kind of two momentous episodes, really. You know, you have the, you know, 1979 was last last time, the only time a Pope ever visited Ireland. And, you know, a million people gathered to see him, the biggest gathering of people in, in Ireland ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then four years later, we had uh, a referendum to kind of lock down our constitution to protect uh, unborn children mm-hmm. and, and mothers jointly. Mm-hmm. And things have changed a lot since then. So sure it's rough. It's roughly forty years later, and then in the space of a couple of months, we have a referendum that abolishes that, and it goes through by roughly the same rate the original one did. So the original one passed by roughly two to one to bring in this constitutional amendment, and the new one passed by two to one to repeal it. Hmm. So it shows how dramatically things have changed. And now, um, in just over a month, and Pope Francis will be coming. So it's a, it's a strange time to be here.
1: Yeah, it was I, when I was there ten years ago. I mean, you could feel, I could feel the the change, you know, in the it, it wasn't Catholic Ireland, even when I was there. I mean, it was it was a lot of it was post Catholic. Um, yeah, I think that
2: I think that's very true. The you know, people are making out that the, the referendum was a dramatic moment in some ways. And in some ways it was, but in other ways it's been coming. Right. Um. You know, I mean, yeah, what you sensed 10 years ago was, was exactly right. I mean, even when, when I was in school or perhaps more usefully when my my older siblings who would be like 10, 12, 15 years older than me, when they were in school, that was a generation that was already starting to turn away. When, um, when so, would that have been? It's roughly the time that John Paul comes. Actually, it's that era. It's it's definitely the seventies. Okay, is the time that I mean. I know. I mean, there's various factors in this, and people will point to different reasons. But I I would solidly say the seventies is when it starts to go. Mm-hmm. Um. So that as you get into the eighties and the nineties, we still have very high mass attendance at that stage. Right. But it's mass attendance out of convention, not out wow. of any kind of conviction. You know, people right. are going because it's just it's what you do. Um I'm not sure how many people seriously believe things, even those who believed. I'm not sure how many of them seriously thought about it. Mm-hmm. Um you know, the the underpinnings weren't there. Right. And then, of course, when the, the abuse crisis comes to light and, it, and it, it's it's I think it, it's big in Ireland before it's like it's it, since it comes to light now and before it comes to light in America. We have um I mean, a government fell over it in 1994. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much what starts giving people, for want of a better phrase, permission mm-hmm. to stop practicing. Yeah. Um, now, weirdly, they still tend to identify as Catholic. Right. Uh, we know this, I mean, 80%, I think it's 78% in the latest census will say they're Catholic. And mm-hmm. we know from other surveys that they will want their children raised to say they're Catholic. But what does that mean? You know, and, you know, and in the referendum, where two out of three people will vote to to remove the right to life for the unborn, you're left with a question of well, what what does this mean? Right.
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, it's one of those things where I I, I look at that and I think in in some senses, it, it weirdly enough, it might be a healthy development in the sense that it's better to be honest than to be dishonest.
2: Yeah, I I think that's true. Um we can i mean i have been a bit worried by people talking about what do we do now mm-hmm. following the following the, the loss of the eighth and and i've seen an awful lot not an awful lot but a significant number of people already planning on how to get it restored and i think that that i actually think that's crazy yeah. um yeah <laughs> it's 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 it, it's like it's fetishizing the battlements Right without, when your when your job is to protect what's behind them. You right. know? Yes. And, yes. You know, no, I hear what um, you're saying. Yeah. And, and and the battlements have fallen. Yeah. You know. Oh, it's behind you now. You know, you you can't do that. You've got to deal with what's what's among you now. Yeah. And and we have to face that. And um, yeah, it's. So,
1: uh, I mean, you know, yeah. there, there there are two ways. It seems to me that that laws get enacted. Uh, one is laws get enacted as an expression of popular will, uh, because it really is what a civilization believes. Uh, but the other reason that laws sometimes get enacted is because people are shoring up something they're pretty sure uh, is is being lost, uh, are pretty sure that people don't believe anymore uh, and when you're in that situation uh, uh, often what you wind up doing if, if you're not addressing you know as, as Jesus points out if you're not addressing the heart uh, simply addressing the external behaviors is not gonna is not going to solve the problem uh, and in many cases you're going to wind up this is what Americans experience with prohibition let's outlaw alcohol. It does bad things to people, well, okay, fine, but you know what? <laughs> uh, nobody wanted to do that, really. Uh, and so you wound up uh, with a law with a set of laws that were uh, not addressing uh, where people actually lived. Uh, and it, it, in many ways, it's, it seems to me that that's what the church has to confront in Ireland uh is yeah uh, a uh, a population that no longer in its heart believes
2: yeah no i think that's Mm. that's absolutely true i mean i one of the most remarkable things that happened here just before the referendum was uh well not before the day of the referendum before we got the official vote is one of the, the the national broadcaster and one of the main newspapers, both of them did big exit polls of people who had voted, and thousands of them were asked numerous questions about how they voted, about what influenced how they vote, how they thought about it, stuff like that. And to me, this is the, the most, in some ways, it's, more, it's much more interesting than the referendum results, which is just a simple, straightforward, you know, landslide. Um, when you break it down, you find that at every generation, people were in favor of repealing the Eighth. Yeah. And um, it wasn't just, you know, young women, which is the, the cliche, it's everybody. Right. Is in, I mean, okay, they're the, the main demographic. Nine out of ten young women would have voted to repeal it, but it's the majority in every single group. Right. But it's very much the think- Go ahead. Yeah, but, but the thing that struck me as really weird is there was a section on what are the major factors that influenced how you vote? What things did you thought were, like, seriously worthy of consideration? And... Only about 30% of people said the right to life of the unborn. Right. Now, in a country where less than one in three people, or maybe at most one in three people, is willing to say, not even to say, I thought about it and voted against it anyway on balance, but to say, I didn't even think it was worth serious consideration. Didn't even enter their thought. Yeah, you've got a serious job of evangelization there.
1: Right. Right. yeah. Yeah, I you know because laws flow from culture. Uh and uh you know the the culture in Ireland is not catholic anymore. Uh and and isn't it, and it's not thinking in those terms. You know, we've got the same problem here of course, you know. And in very similar numbers. Uh you know the weirdness of our abortion politics is you know 20 for, you got 20% of the population who want abortion on demand without apology you got another 20% who want to outlaw it and then the middle 60% very much like in Ireland is like we don't like this but we don't want to do anything about it uh because who wants to tell some 15 year old girl in a crisis pregnancy uh you're on your own and yeah. so you know and that's you know you, you see the you see that same kind of thinking uh uh, uh in in the Irish vote you know
2: yeah, no, I think you do. I mean, I think have, things have shifted over the years here anyway, in different ways. And some of them for the better. Like one of the, the remarkable ones, we'll see what's going to happen now. But over the last 15 years, um, you can you can work out the Irish abortion rate by looking at British abortion rates, because you have to register where you're coming from. And so there's the number of Irish people seeking abortions in Britain used to be around 2080 or so it used to be around seven and a half thousand and now it's down to somewhere in the region of three and a half so it has dropped whereas the uk figure in general has stayed the same or maybe got a bit higher okay whereas it dropped people will claim some people will claim it's down to pills and stuff like that but they have access to them in britain and use them as well it doesn't seem likely that that's impacting it much um, and whenever you see figures for them, they're coming from the people who are supplying pills illegally themselves. So they're not exactly, right. you know, reliable figures. Yeah. So they have been dropping, and various things are in play. One of them is that the old stigma against unmarried mothers has gone, right? Uh, or at least it's gone among working class people. In particular, middle class is a bit different. But if you're kind of working class or rural, if you're pregnant, back in the day, you know, there was obviously a time when people were kind of went off to a mother and baby home and had the baby in secret, or they went to England and had the baby in secret. Right. Um, and, th- and then there was a phase when they w- would have gone around. That would be the phrase, to, to get the boat, which is the euphemism to travel for an abortion. Okay. Uh, and on now. You know, okay. if people are pregnant, there'll be support. And there are, I mean, they're not as good as they should be, but there are still serious state supports to help people in that situation. Well, you know, thank so God the, for that. The mechanisms are there. Yeah. Um, I mean, they should be better, but... They're there you know right. they're, yeah. they're not terrible um, and yeah. so there's something there so stuff like that I think still needs work I mean and I think that becomes even more important now for the church to right say we've got to have these things in place right to to show people that this is not the best choice the best choice right. is to have the child and go on and right to help them help help people have children essentially well
1: and and also you know the uh, I, I you know one of the one of the steps forward that I think that we've finally started to see, you know, we saw this with the rise. Uh, I don't know how much of a dent it's made in Irish culture, but, you know, the rise of the Me Too movement here in the United States, mm. you know, has, has made a big dent in saying, you know, <laughs> uh, men do an amazing job of not having to bear any of the responsibility or onus Uh, Even in even in cases of sexual assault. Yeah. You know, and uh, um, that uh, I I think the 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 drive toward uh, uh, a not punishing women, because that's the weirdness, of course, of our culture is, you know, abortion is bad and women should be punished for being pregnant out of wedlock. Uh, was a very strange combination. It's like, make up your mind, you know, which, which are you going to pursue here? Uh, and why are you pursuing either of them? You know, it's, it's a, it's a, the, the, the question for a lot of people became, you know, why are we, uh, uh, why are we opposing abortion if you're opposing abortion because it's the taking of innocent human life you've got you've got a real argument there because it is but if you're opposing abortion because women should be punished for being pregnant out of wedlock which unfortunately there are people who take that approach you know uh that's crazy uh and and so the the support for women has to be there uh and the the idea that the the mother is not the opposite of the child, if you will uh that her good matters as well as the child's good uh and the that culture of misogyny which is certainly showing up here at the in the United States i mean look at who we elected president, you know uh misogyny is still celebrated in a lot of ways, and so i'm 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 heartened to see uh that there's kind of a two front push both for the dignity of the child and for the dignity of
2: the mother um yeah i mean i don't think i don't think that's long been the the line here for the pro the pro life movement really to try and do both yeah um I mean, pe- people will claim that it's not the case, but I worry. and of course, there's always going to be elements which are, let's just say, problematic and leave it at that.. Right. But, but the broad thrust of it has been that way. Now yeah. I am worried, I am kind of worried, because one of the things that you see, if you look at the Irish government over the last few years, okay, we've got money pouring in at the moment, but generally speaking, for the last nine 10 years country's been in financial trouble Yeah, the the crash hit ireland ireland very 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 badly In 2008 and yeah i mean it really really hit us and complicated but essentially our bankers had borrowed money so they could lend the money that they didn't really have anything to you know they weren't lending (laughs) to sensible people essentially it was all and the whole thing collapsed and the government decided they were going to guarantee the system so it didn't fall apart um Because not least, because that would have pulled down the British and French and German banks. And you can imagine all of Europe collapsing because of Ireland. So they Uh guaranteed it. They guaranteed it. But the effect of that was that and then the other countries helped them with the guarantee to make it hold. But it does mean, firstly, it was all borne by Irish taxpayers. But also the government didn't have much leeway in how they could spend money. So this has two things now. One of them is that I'm a bit concerned that they'll start, you know, cutting back on support for people who need support especially because now they have an option, they can have an abortion if they want to you know, I can see that happening the other one though is more more broad which is for the last since 2011 in particular uh, I remember my brother saying to me at the time he was tempted not to vote Uh, no, I think he did, but he was tempted not to vote because he felt that we weren't electing a government we were electing civil servants they didn't have any money, they had no leeway about how they were going to spend it what were they going to do Well, we found out what they were going to do. A government without money has to justify its position somehow. Right. And it justifies it by doing, I mean, some people will use the term virtue signaling. But what it is, certainly, is social measures that don't cost a lot of money, but make it look like you're active. And that's the background. What? Government's
1: doing symbolic (laughs) gestures instead of real stuff?
2: Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, you've never heard no. of it before. <laughs> um, but, but, of course, in the case of Ireland, what that has meant is, who do you make symbolic gestures against? The traditional power in the country, which is the church. The I church, mean, it's, right. it's, it's flogging a dead horse, but right. it starts with, you know, uh, just one of the abuse reports came out, and the, the report essentially found that in one diocese uh, the then bishop didn't do his job. Now, it turned out that... Nobody was hurt because of this. People have been hurt before, but nobody was hurt because of his negligence. Um, There was criticisms in the report of state bodies as well, but people that was ignored. And our our head of government, our Taoiseach, as he's called, went up there in our parliament and launched a massive attack on the church and in particular on the Vatican, uh, which hadn't been involved at all in this process. In fact, one of the things that's very obvious when you read it is that the diocese had hidden things from the Vatican, and um, but it doesn't matter. He attacked the Vatican, and that was easy PR. Right. Shortly after that, we have the same-sex marriage movement, which again doesn't cost the government a penny, but is, is PR. Right. Sure. From that point of view, um, and that moves on, and then we have, um, you know, abortion is actually going to cost money, but there is still more money now. <laughs> so, right. But but basically, speaking, but at the same time. You know the health minister, who's now apparently a hero because he's brought in he's brought in abortion into Irish law, right. is dealing with what we have. We've have a major crisis in our health service. We've got um, a couple of hundred women who had the wrong tests or the wrong results given them for cervical cancer tests. You know, mm-hmm. and therefore we don't know what's going to happen to them. But some of them are dying, and they shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got hundreds and hundreds of people who are in hospital on trolleys rather than proper beds in wards, because we don't have enough for them. Um, you know, we also have things like we have um, they're very proud that they've got rid of what they call the baptism ban, uh, which is schools um, apparently you know, if, if people, if, if a school is oversubscribed, the school can favour, if I have to choose between people um, it can favour some a child from a family of the school's ethos, which mm-hmm course, given Ireland is historically Catholic and nearly all the schools are built and owned by parents, that right. means Catholic children. Right. Um. But of course, people gloss over the fact that they're church-owned. The constant line is they're church-run. They're state-subsidised. State, state, the state. The staff are state, basically. Right. With the buildings and the, the maintenance system done by the church. Um. But of course, the obvious solution here, when you've got oversubscribed schools is that the church or the state should build some new schools that's <laughs> a very clear thing uh, inflation is rising that's what you do you spend but that would money and you, money. exactly exactly so you should be spending money but rather than spend money you bring in this law to get rid of a baptism ban which apparently doesn't happen anyway it might be might be one child in 400 okay that gets turned away because of this and even if they get turned away they'll get accepted in another school nearby yeah. So it's not a real problem, but it's become one because partly because those one in 400 cases tend to be in some of the more affluent suburbs of the capital where journalists and civil servants and kind of opinion formers live. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they can put it into national headlines. <laughs> but, but mainly <laughs> this is so, why
1: this is why, the, by the way, this is why the you hear a lot more about a massacre in Paris than you do. Uh, in some third world country. Because yeah. Paris yeah. has really nice hotels and
2: <laughs> restaurants for, uh, rest- uh, yeah. for borders. And, therefore, uh, and we know Paris. Yeah, exactly. Right, we yeah. know it. So you, you talk, at some level, all news is local. Yeah, right. And, and, and that's what it is. So if you're a journalist in, I'm going to say Ranala, which is a well-off Dublin suburb, and you can't get your child into a school in Ranala, you make that national news, and you make it out to be a national problem. Yeah. And, and in fact, it turns out that and Mike is one of only a tiny number of places where this is a problem. And even then, the solution is build more Builders. schools, build extra classrooms. <laughs> you know, that's what you do, right? Uh, but again, that requires money. So instead, you just bring in this kind of virtue-signaling law that Perfect. makes it look like you're doing a lot. There's a whole, we've right. done a whole series of them. So that's been our. This is our e- policy lately. This is
1: everything, Rene Girard. Great French philosopher uh, uh, talked. To, uh, social critic talked about. He talked about the uh, the way in which societies under stress always always deal with their problem it is you find some scapegoat, uh, some outgroup that you can pin all of your problems on. And in and in the case of Ireland, the Catholic Church is the ideal scapegoat. Uh, just yeah, they, it, it's all their fault. We need to just. You know, so because it's cheap, it's easy, you could just, you know, look, there's the Catholic Church, they're evil, and we're not spending any money.
2: Yeah. And and a funny side of that is that, I mean, look, I think we all know, anybody with any sense of history knows, the Church of Ireland has done a lot of bad. Oh, sure. Absolutely. It's good. We we, we all know this. Right. And of course. But but what what gets glossed over if we don't look at the history of it properly is, firstly, the church in Ireland wasn't some kind of alien thing that was plonked into Ireland. Right. It was an expression of the Irish people. Sure. You know, I mean, I mean the classic, the cliche was always like the second son going into the church and stuff like that, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my family was unusual. We didn't have any religious in our family that I know of. Mm. Um, but basically everybody I know had an uncle or an aunt who was a priest or a brother or a nun. You know, yeah. that, was, that was the way it worked. Sure and they were and of course they were always fine there was other priests and brothers and nuns who were the problem but but the reality is that was the whole country that was the that was the the shape of the country yeah and irish politics and irish religion were just expressions of irish people sure and we pretend this is not the case now i mean one of the you know i i you know we you mentioned at the start the 1916 book i did so we've been having this huge national discussion lately about you know what happened a hundred years ago that made us into an independent nation, and and who are we? And they're very closely related questions. Um, And at the the centenary, the day that we celebrated the centenary of the 1916 Rising, um, that evening, our president, uh, which is mainly a ceremonial position in Ireland, um, gave a mostly brilliant and highly problematic (laughs) um, talk in Dublin, in which he talked about commemorations often say more about the present than they do about the past and about how historians choose to remember things and choose not to and how we've got to be very careful, he said, not to falsify the past. And all, all this was a percent correct. So it was mm-hmm. kind of unfortunate that when he gave examples of stuff, he was, in effect, falsifying the past. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, he, he listed off the influences on leaders of the 1916 Rising. And he, he did loads of them, and they're all real influences, and they range from like, cultural change and development of theatre to pacifism to socialism to all sorts of things, and they were all there. That's, mm-hmm. that's all correct. And, of course, what was missing was religion, and in particular, Catholicism, Right, which is crazy because, well, for a whole range of reasons, but the short version is that the vast majority of people who, in the 1916 Rising and the subsequent War of Independence, were practicing catholics Mm -hmm. and um and it's important because this gets glossed out and the, the the modern narrative the kind of meta narrative to use a kind of tedious phrase of modern ireland is that it was a group of radicals who rose for ireland in 1916 and then once we won independence the state was kind of hijacked by this cold misogynistic catholic church and the catholics took over Mm-hmm. And you go, but no, it was the same people. <laughs> um, you know, it was it yes. Was just, you know, you, you know. If if you go through, we have this wonderful, wonderful tranche of documents. There's thirty-six thousand documents, I think, in total, um, called the Bureau of Military History. And in the forties and fifties, they interviewed the survivors of the nineteen sixteen rising and the War of Independence, and they took depositions from thousands of people, and then they locked them up because they thought if people see these now you're just going to have whole new civil wars breaking out left right and center because that's that's one of the things that happened when Ireland got independence we promptly had a civil war and um, we 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 didn't wait 80 years like you guys we straight away you know we 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 didn't we we weren't slack about it we just launched into it well in, <laughs> in, in,
1: in your defense that's actually been the historical norm in most revolutionary we're the weirdos uh,
2: yeah that's <laughs> and <that> it took <laughs> us a while to do that you know that, that, that's, that's true. So, so our and ours was about essentially about the fact that we had people had fought a rebellion to be a republic and then what we got wasn't a republic it was it was under the British crown and within 20 or so years we'd achieved full republic status but it, it took a while and people felt you couldn't accept the treaty that we made without repudiating the republic that already sworn to, and so it was anyway. So that's that's where it came from.
1: Well, you, um, you 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 lucked out because Britain wound up getting itself in not one but two world wars that completely destroyed it, and that helped too. Yeah, but
2: it does help because in, in the sense that the nineteen sixteen rising, one of the key things about it was that World War One was happening at the time. Right, and it it doesn't make a lot of sense except in the context of World War One. It's World War One, that's the pretext for Britain delaying giving Ireland devolved, autonomous government. Uh-huh. It's World War One taking longer than everybody thinks. That right. causes frustration to come into Ireland going, They're never gonna give us this. Right. It's World War One that gives the harder Republicans the notion of this is our opportunity. Right. And then it's the fact that we're posing a distraction from the Western Front and look like we're the enemy within, we're a liaison with the Germans, stuff like that. Right. That causes London to bombard the city. You know, they yeah. give an instruction at one stage, which is everybody within a certain area, get out. We're going to assume you're a rebel if you're there. They got a warning and then they flattened it, which frankly is what Assad's father did with other Hammer or Homs in the 80s. You know, oh, the, yeah, pe- sure. pe- 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 people said that Dublin looked like Eep yeah. after that. It was just, just you know, and massacres in the streets and stuff like that. It's remarkable that the casualty rates were so low in the end, frankly. It was about 500 people, all told, yeah. over the course of a week. You know, it, it could have been much worse. But anyway, all that kind of takes me... <laughs> to it so World War I did make a difference. But what right. matters is that... So we get independence, um, and uh, civil war follows afterwards. So these documents were taken down, deposition taken down decades later, and they, they locked them up because they were afraid that if they got out in public, people would start fighting again over issues that were, were raised and We were claiming people were lying and stuff like that. So right. they were only opened up around the time you visited Ireland, around 2006. And um, it's been a most extraordinary treasure trove, which has enabled us to get a real sense of what it was like during this period in Ireland. And one of the things you find is, and that's with anything, what you find largely depends on the questions you ask when you look at it so i mean i went through them and i was searching for for religious references in particular and that's when you start finding that like pretty much everywhere in the 1916 rising the rebels are looking for mass to be celebrated at their at their their outposts uh-huh. they're, they're looking for priests to come and hear their confession we know of a confirmation in one place um and the rosary is said everywhere uh-huh. it's, the, it's 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 basically the soundtrack to the rebellion oh yeah is you know and you have you have conversions at the time you have uh, the more of the most remarkable bits is that this, this, this most of the, the rebels are part of the the irish volunteer force as it had been called um doesn't matter what it was but you to think it was, it was a paramilitary force that was originally intended to ensure that britain lived up to its word and gave us devolved government it was a response to the unionists in what's now northern ireland setting up their paramilitary force to threaten war if britain did give us default government. So they Uh responded back and forth. But there was a very small, because paramilitary forces was all the rage at the time. There was a small one called the Irish Citizens Army, which were the socialists. Mm -hmm. And there was only about 200 of them. And they've gone down in popular lore as kind of classic left-wing atheists. They were nothing of the sort. Um, Their leader, Connolly, had been in America in, in 1908, 1910, thereabouts, and had broken for the American Communist Party because he felt that they were too anti-Catholic and they couldn't understand that you could combine these things in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd, I mean, he, he was by no means a practicing Catholic, though he was, at the end, it's kind of a no atheist in a foxhole situation. He came back to the faith at the very end and urged his Protestant wife to convert, uh, which she did a few months later. Um, so but perhaps more importantly, like his second in command, a guy called Michael Mallon, um, Malin, um, very famously, um, just before he died, he had his wife and infant son visit him in his prison cell before he was executed. And he wrote a letter to them in which he says, you know, to his son, you know, uh, when you grow, be a priest if you can. Um, and he urged his daughter to become a nun. Now, the mother never showed these letters to her children, apparently. Um, oh. Left it kind of unfairly influenced them. But they did it anyway. Um, and in fact, that young, that boy, uh, Joseph Mallon, um, only died about two, three months ago. So he was like the old, probably like 104 or something like that. Wow. Uh, 103 or old. he was a, a Jesuit missionary in Hong Kong and had been oh. there since the 40s. Wow. Um, so you had this. But it was the ordinary members of the Citizens Army who, kneeling down and saying their rosary while fighting with the British across Stevens Green, that yeah. inspired Countess Markovich, who'd been a notionally Anglican, kind of almost a, a spiritualist in that kind of Arthur Conan Doyle kind of way. Right, yeah, yeah. That that, that led her into into joining the, the, the faith as well and becoming Catholic too. Huh. So basically everybody, even the socialists, were Catholic in the 1916 Rising. And you hear about the crowds going to church the night before the Rising to have their confessions heard and stuff like that delivered because they're advised to by their commanding officers. Right. So Whatever it was, I mean, it, it was, for better or for worse, it was a profoundly Catholic affair. Yes, yeah. And, and, and so it's not surprising that we got a Catholic state. That was going to happen. In sure. Fact, they, they actually had to piggyback onto the church to make things, in the sense that, because large gatherings weren't allowed, because this is right. wartime and it's, the, the British didn't want this happening. But, of course, funerals were allowed. Months mind masses were allowed. Yeah. And so you were able to use the church as your vehicle for for nationalism. And that's that's what happened. But unfortunately, in the process of all this, what happens is that a very, very... I mean, basically, politics and religion were both expressions of the same people. Sure. And they became profoundly tied together. Yeah. And of course, as always happens, rot sets in. Right. Well, the worst thing Uh, that has
1: ever... The worst thing that can ever happen, I think, to the Catholic Church is for it to... Become uh, uh, allied with the rich and powerful, which it periodically has done throughout history. Yeah. You know, yeah. And of course, you know, when you win in a revolution, uh, and then, then what? Well, now you're on your way. You know, to becoming a- as it became. Uh, you know, the establishment. Uh, and with the establishment comes the need to protect yourself. And you stop being the voice of the underdog, uh, and um, you know, and we, and you and that's you know, you, you see those. I mean, we saw the same thing here with the with the priest abuse scandal, you know, and, and that's been repeated uh, around the world as well, you know, and, and of course you've seen it obviously in spades in Ireland, uh, but yeah, so much of what seems to be going on now. Seems to be a generation, you know, looking not at the church of the underdog that's, you know, that stood with almost the the archetypal, you know, image of, you know, the plucky rebel alliance against (laughs) the evil empire, you know, uh, uh, and, you know, so much of what's happening in Ireland right now, and I'm, I'm sure we'll see it, unfortunately, we're going to see it played out even when, when Francis comes, is, you know, a generation of people who have no experience of what you've been describing. Obviously, it happened a century ago. Um, and who know the church primarily as, you know, the... The thing that they went to for convention's sake, the Church of the of the Magdalene Laundries, the Church of, uh, you know, abuse and scandal and so forth. Some of that, very real. Some of it, as you were describing, you know, the state looking for some easy scapegoat. Uh, yeah, that's no, the I, thing. I... But yeah, so what do you think is... Uh, what are you anticipating for Francis's visit?
2: Well, it's it's hard to tell. We're going through a strange patch at the moment. Um, I mean, I think it's fair to say that, first of all, the referendum has enervated people in different ways. And So what we're seeing is, for instance, there's two curious developments in terms of reacting to Francis, in terms of the negative stuff. We'll do the positive stuff after. <laughs> okay. You, we've had um, firstly, you've got a small group of people, but I think a few thousand, that's enough to cause a problem. Who started this ridiculous movement called Note to the Pope? And okay. the way we. That sounds I mean, pretty orange. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, well, <laughs> well, yeah, well, it does, doesn't it? But, but you can be confident that the Protestants aren't involved in this. Uh, this is ex Catholics, nominal Catholics. Right, um, right. You know, and it's what they, what they basically have done is the world meeting of families is going to conclude with a a mass in the phoenix park and it's going to be five hundred thousand people plus you know support people right um so apparently for health and safety reasons we're not allowed to have more than that so there's no way of knowing if we would have hit the one million figure from 1979 okay actually no way of telling that okay health and safety the state won't allow it to be bigger than that so okay that's fine and the way it's done is you know back in 79 you just walked down to the park i i i it was a two mile walk from my house okay. i was like four four and i think i hijacked my sister's pushchair so i could get a lift for some <laughs> of the jerky okay um but that's not the option this time it's very regulated this time and one of the things you have to do is you have to have a ticket um, and it's partly for security reasons apparently for just crowd control reasons So the tickets, the way it's worked, it's not charged, but you did have to register on their website and they would allocate you tickets. And all the tickets have have, have gone now. So all 500,000 have gone. Um, But of course, this group of people thought, well, the tickets are free. Why not just register and get lots of tickets so other people can't have them? And... Yeah, you just can see this... Be- being jerks, okay. Yeah, being and, and, and look, in fairness to people who I would normally regard as fairly anti-Catholic in Ireland, pretty much everybody in any position of authority, regardless of their line on the church, came out saying, ah, come on, don't do this. This, this, this is just being a jerk. You know, don't, yeah, don't right. do this. this it, it is. It is just so, being a jerk. It is. I mean, how that works out, we don't know. I mean, I know the world, meaning of families, people, um, I was talking to them and they say, look... Any free event like this, you have to calculate for about 10% of messing about or loss or whatever. Right. So, and they, they had various systems in place for washing out what they think will be false ones, you know, ranging from algorithms to just looking at them and going, you know, if somebody signs up for 10 tickets five times from the same place and he's signing in as, you know, Robin Hood or whatever, you know, you go, well, sure. he's obviously not real because nobody's called Robin Hood, <laughs> you know, so cross them out. <laughs> or not nowadays. Anyway. So, you know, so stuff like that. So, so they're pretty confident they can wash them out. So actually, I think they probably allocated initially more than 500,000 tickets okay. with the view of it being 500,000 on the day when you actually get your kind of your ticket in the post or not the post, you get an email, to right. you and print it out. So I think that's how it's going to be 500,000. So that's no to the Pope. Uh, and they managed to annoy an awful lot of people. Yeah. Um, More subtly and more serious, I think, is prominent figures who identify as Catholic and do, I think, sincerely see themselves as Catholic. And there are problems there. You, you know this thing where Catholicism, and in many ways it's a very good thing, where cradle Catholics – identify their relationship to the church as one of family rather yes. than one of doctrine.
1: Yes. So in true. some ways,
2: in some ways, this is a very good thing, yeah. but it has bad aspects to it. And one of them, of course, is that if you decide that you believe something different, either you can suck it up and go, well, I differ with the church, but we're family and that's how it goes. Mm-hmm. Or you can go, no, the church is my family and therefore it should think what I think. Right. And so we Well, it has of...
1: it has uh, the that approach has the advantage of people stay which is Yeah. You know, a friend of mine once yeah, remarked
2: Yeah, no, I think it's true. I think that's true. Yeah.
1: Yeah, a friend of mine once remarked that, you know, any any religion that practices infant baptism has extremely low membership requirements. Okay. <laughs> and that's really true. And 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 so that Catholic habit, the cradle Catholic habit, I, I as a convert, I totally came at the church as a body of doctrine. That was that was how I evaluated my entire relationship with the faith. It, it still tends to be my habit of mind. Of uh, uh, You know, it does the church teach the truth? Okay, well, then I'm a Catholic. Uh, and when I made the move from, does the church teach this truth or that truth to finally recognizing is the church a truth telling thing? That was when I realized when there's a disagreement with the church, I'm the one that's probably wrong. Yeah. Uh, um, but people who come at it as family are like, even if the church is wrong, I'm going to stick with her because she's my family. And that doesn't mean the church is actually wrong, but it does... I think, give a, a habit of mind that helps you stay in contact with the church, which is a, which is a healthy thing.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think that's yeah. true. I mean, You know, my, my own case, I mean, you obviously mentioned at the start, you know, I, I born and raised Catholic, drifted away, came back. When I wouldn't say drifted away. I was pretty ardent that it was all nonsense. Right. You know, at the same time, that didn't stop me as a teenager from going to mass because as much as anything, I knew it would upset my parents, and I saw no <laughs> virtue in, in doing that, you know. <laughs> um, you know. Uh, but I would just go along and daydream in the back of the church and never pay any attention, you know, and then if I could sneak away, I would, you know, um, yeah. but it was it was years later I came back and I I I did tend to relate to myself more as doctrine and the way that reverts often do, to be fair, kind of more as doctrine. Um, and it, in many ways, it was the coming back to Ireland during my time as a Dominican. That was like a boot camp for let's come back to Irish Catholicism, you know. I did stuff with the Dominican I had never done before. I, I went to a mass rock. I'd never been to a mass rock. You know, the, the rocks in the mountains of Ireland where people used to celebrate mass during oh. the time when priests
1: were illegal. I, I've you seen know. one of those in Scotland, but yeah.
2: Yeah. So we've got them all over Ireland. In fact, more than we thought there were, because it turns out there's lots of them out there that are not registered anywhere. And are okay. therefore are in danger of being destroyed <laughs> unless we preserve them. Make an effort, as so, as um, you would actually expect there to be. <laughs> yeah, and they're, they're they're everywhere. And sometimes they're they're not even rocks. What they are is they've piled a heap of stones in a particular way so it will function as an altar. You know, it's, it's there's various right. ways of identifying them. But anyway, so right. I'd never been to a mass rock. I'd never been to Knock. Um, I had, I'd certainly never led a rosary. I'd heard, you know, stuff like that. All these things I did that yeah. helped me to kind of. And just talking to people of all ages and kind of getting a sense of different aspects of it. Yeah. And um, It helped a lot. And then working on the paper and all that. So since then, I've definitely learned to see it more in a family way. Yeah. And and there definitely are advantages. I mentioned earlier that, you know, um, I think it was a Pew study. And the Pew study, it, it didn't, the one detail of it didn't make headlines anywhere except in the Irish Catholic. And I think it's because it was on page 80 or so of a 170-page document. Um my, my boss gave it to me to read and said, Can you do an analysis piece on that? And I had a night to do so and I was gonna do what everybody else did, which is well I just I downloaded. I thought I was being quite conscientious. I downloaded what I thought was the document. And then discovered that the fifteen pages I downloaded was just the first bit, eight <laughs> bits of the document. So I thought, oh no, this is gonna be a long night. Um so and it it turns out that that's what every other journalist had done in the other papers. So I, because I was a complete nerd pulled down the pdf and spent the night going through it Mm -hmm. and the most extraordinary thing i found it was a figure about people who identify as christian because this is a use christian is a generic term but in ireland it overlaps so much with catholic it's safe to assume it agrees you know right so people who identify as christian but who don't practice right how do they raise their children and it varies widely but you know they're like Sweden and places like that it might be just I'm going to make this up but pretend I'm right something like 10% of people who don't practice will raise their children to see themselves as Christian Mm -hmm. and in England it might be 30% or something like that there are low figures Mm -hmm. for uh, 60 is about the highest it gets anywhere right except for Ireland where it's 92% Mm -hmm. in other words non-practicing Catholics Catholics who set foot in the church at most Christmas and Easter and probably just at weddings and funerals and baptisms, mm-hmm. probably not even Christmas and Easter. Yeah. Even then, nine out of ten of them want their children to identify as Catholic. Yeah. And so, on the one hand, look, is this good? No. On the other hand, you know, when our, our Lord doesn't just say, "If you're not against us, you know, you're with," you know, he, if you're right, not with yeah. us, you're against us. He also says, "If you're, if you're not against us, you're with us." Right? Yeah. And, and there's something to work with there. Yeah. There is something we can work with, providing we have, we're have, we intelligent about it. I mean, I, one of the things I, I learned when I was a Dominican novice, I looked at their congregation regularly, day in, day out, and I became convinced that, okay, our official headline figure of mass attendance in Ireland might be 30%, which is down from like 90% 20, 30 years ago. Right. But I don't think that's a real figure. I think the real figure is about 10%, and by which I mean those aged under say, 45, it's probably 10%. Yeah. Um, I'm Yeah. not discounting the others, but what I'm saying is when people talk about low vocation rates or anything like that, you're drawing from that group. You're drawing from the 10%. You're not drawing yes. from the bigger crowd. Yes. Uh, you have to think about that figure. It's a percentage of that. Um, yeah. So we're, we're still doing pretty poorly, but it's not it, relatively it's something to work with. It's, and, and I don't see this as defeatism to say 10%. What I say is, is just let's face the reality we've got and work with that reality. Yeah. Let's not pretend it's something else.
1: Yeah. We, you know, we're and we're in a very similar position here in the United States. Uh, by the way, uh, while I have you, uh, one book that I would highly recommend for you to check out uh, yeah. in addressing that is uh, a book by Sherry Waddell called Forming Intentional Disciples because it's all about this phenomenon.
0: Yeah, I
2: hear about this a lot, and to my shame, I've not read it yet. Okay. Um, I, well, think it, my, my, I think my fiance is very big on it, so I it's very much addressed. It. I can see it being added to the bookshelf soon.
1: <laughs> it, it's it's uh, you know it's written in an American context, but it applies uh, tremendously to to the Irish uh, situation right now. Uh, because I think what you're going to do is you're going to wind up demographically. I think you're going to wind up following the United States yeah uh, we were in about that position about twenty years ago uh, and uh n- right now what we 're seeing uh is the generation of millennials uh growing up and saying i don 't buy this i i, I don 't believe uh yeah. and they 're leaving you know they 're not continuing to go to mass or keep up a pretense they 're just going uh and, and so the the book is a is precisely about uh, how to, you know, form disciples, because the thing about, a uh, a, a real disciple, and that's, I think what you see with, for example, with Pope Francis is that a, a real disciple uh, is attractive a, as Francis is attractive, uh, because they, you know, they live it. They don't just talk about it. Uh, and, uh, so anyway, um, uh, uh, highly recommend uh, Forming intentional disciples by Sherry Waddell. Uh, so speaking of Francis uh what uh, what do you anticipate uh
2: for when he comes? I think it is, I think he's going to go down well to be honest with you. Um um I you know, he's he's coming over. He's only here for two days. Uh, there is disappointment about the fact he's not going to Northern Ireland. There's, there's real disappointment about that. But mm-hmm. at the same time, the decision's made, you know, spilt milk. So we we move on. Um, So um, if you're regular, you have a World Meeting of Families, it's already massively oversubscribed. Um, I think the biggest one, I mean, these things grow. I think in Philadelphia, there were 20,000 people for the regular World Meeting, you know, the conference part of it. Um, We've got 37,000 coming to this one, so that's good. Um, You have the kind of the the Festival of Families. That'll be in Croke Park, which is kind of our national football stadium. Mm -hmm. Um, It's about the same size as one of 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 your bigger football stadiums um, in the States. I I know it's roughly the same size as Lambeau in Green Bay, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the following day, he'll fly out to Nock in the morning. Um, Seemingly, there'll be 45,000 people at Nock. Okay. Um, and he will lead the angelus there and visit the apparition chapel, mm-hmm. and then he'll fly back to Dublin for to go to the Phoenix Park after uh, for the, to lead the closing mass. And as I said, it'll be we think five hundred thousand people at that. Okay. And when he's in when he's in Dublin, he'll do a few things. He will do, you know, the usual stuff. He'll visit the president, meet dignitaries, and more importantly, from his point of view, he's going to be visiting one of our, our great national heroes, um uh, Brother Kevin Crowley. Brother Brother Kevin runs probably the most famous and long-established soup kitchen for want of a better phrase in the city he's a, a capuchin who started doing this in the 60s and now mm. he's you know in his 80s and still going and of course as irish homelessness has gone through the roof in the last few years and the country went bankrupt um he's feeding six seven eight hundred people every day um so Wonderful. Um, francis is, is definitely going to go out to meet kevin so that's going to be one of his things and oddly enough to kind of almost full circle on a bit of a conversation kevin's from the same community of capuchins who administered uh to the the gpo to the 1916 rebels um, when they were awaiting their execution oh, really it's the same it's the same community the capuchins on church street so uh, wow yeah. So it's going kind to of, it's going kind to of need how things work around that way. Yeah. So, I, I mean, stuff like and I know, for instance, that the, the Festival of Families in Croke Park, for instance, one of the things that they're doing for that is aside from parishes sending along people to it. um, Francis has particularly asked for a prioritization to be there to ensure the homeless families. We're, we're developing a real issue of family homelessness, and homeless families and such people. Um very much the kind of outcasts of modern Ireland, you know, drug addicts and very people will yeah. actually be included. Families have had problems with that, and they're going to be prioritized. Good. Um, so really, you know, we're getting ridiculous headlines about hotels, kicking families out to enable paying guests to come in during the, the, the war meeting, but there's a, there's been a bit of a backlash against that. People like Brother Kevin have been out there saying it's the last thing that Francis would want. Would want any hotels to try that to try and profiteer for the situation should be boycotted. Right. You know, it's right, sure. So, so, and and I think it's important as well to note that, um, whatever anti-church feeling there may be, um, and there is an angle that probably needs addressing here, but uh, which I'll get to in a sec. But whatever anti-church feeling there may be, I mean, think back to what happened when Benedict came to Britain in 2010. You know there was such opposition to him ahead of that. Right. Um, and yet, when he... He stormed the when socks arrived, off him. He <laughs> did, absolutely. He yeah. absolutely did. Yeah. And, and, and he did this by just being this kind of small, mild person who smiles gently and says thoughtful things. Right. Um, he's not a crowd worker like right. Francis is. You know. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, so I, I, I think it'll be fine. I think, you know, um, no, I think that'll be absolutely fine. Now, the thing that's going to be kind of weird is that there's kind of an opposition within. That's why I was talking about the family aspect of it earlier. You know, you mentioned, um, you know, people who, who go for infant baptism obviously have a low bar for membership. Right. Well, Our our former prime minister, or for, sorry, our former president, we don't have a prime minister, our former president, head of state, um, Mary McAleese, um, right. is, you know, she's somebody who would have been very heavily involved in the church. She would have spoken up for it in the past in various ways. And for the first, she was a wonderful president. Yeah. I think she's been increasingly problematic as a as a, uh, that's a word I use a lot I know but it, yeah. difficult should we say as as a former as an ex president traditionally ex presidents kind of well to be honest with you they used to just kind of die because they were always very old when they became <laughs> president but, um, you know but 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 nowadays that's an efficient with the, system well yeah well actually I think it's an ongoing problem in the world in the sense that if you have world leaders who are young what do they do when they finish their job. You know, you know when when Trudeau finishes in Canada, you know when that happens, he's right. going to have about forty years ahead of him. We're not we're not going to hear the end of him. You know, admittedly, yeah. David Cameron just seems to have gone off to permanent retirement That's because I think he's ashamed of what he's done in Britain.
1: Well, I think, think, I think you yeah. know that Trudeau can you know he can go off and and be the Calvin Klein model that well, he was born yeah. to be. You know, but uh. <laughs> yeah.
2: and, and, that, and that may that may well happen. So so you you have these. Um, you know, so, so leaders who, you know, you basically it used to be the case that to become president in Ireland, you would have a political career. And then when you'd be about 65 or so, you would become president. And if you had two terms as president, you'd finish at 80. So you right. wouldn't be heard of again, basically. Right. Just, just shut that up and you become, write your memoirs. Yeah. But if you become president at, say, 50, you're going to be finished at 65. You've got a lot of time. And you've still got a voice, and you're going to have things you're going to want to say. Right. And Mary McAleese, somewhere along the way, shifted her her various views. Um, it could be because her son is is gay. That's a factor. Yeah. It could be because she's got very close links to some. They're they're certainly at the more liberal end of the Catholic clerical spectrum. Right. And um, well, so, saw it could her be think- one or the other.
1: I saw her thing about what is it? Infant baptism is brainwashing yeah.
2: or something. I yeah. mean, that was in, so crazy. Involuntary in subscription or conscription yeah. is what yeah. she called it. Yeah. Come on. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and and you know she's tried to roll back on it a little bit since, but but that's the kind of stuff we're getting. We also had, I mean, a remarkable thing where we had there's a minister in our government. Um, she is minister for uh, heritage, culture, and the Grail Gaelic, so the Irish language parts of the country. So basically, she's our arts minister. Okay. And she uh, was the the person leading her political party's role in the abortion referendum recently. So she okay. was one of the leading figures on it. Right. She is also a reader in a Dublin parish. Mm-hmm. And therefore a regular and prominent member of the congregation there. Right. And there weren't any questions about that anyway. But then a few weeks ago, uh, about three weeks ago now, I suppose. Everything just, there's so much have been happening. Um, but a few weeks ago, the regular priest was away. He'd arranged a supply priest to take over. It was a Saturday evening vigil mass for the Sunday. The supply priest, who was kind of a, he hadn't written it down properly or something, and he didn't show up. So the sacristan says to the readers, what will we do? And the readers decide to have an impromptu Eucharistic service, which they'd never done. They would no training in, they had no idea what they were doing. Um, they decided that they wouldn't have a gospel because it's the priest's job to read the gospel, um, and they distributed communion. And then, of course, the headline comes out, which is that she had said mass in Dublin. Now, she hadn't, of course, but nonetheless, all this had happened. following day, she's on the radio talking about it, and national radio, and the question is asked. She said, I wouldn't say I said mass exactly, but along the way, it becomes clear that she, you know, she didn't really seem clear on what the Eucharist is, frankly. You know, she talked about it as being saying, well, the bread was, bread was blessed, but there was no sacrament. And things like this, she said, and <laughs> you're left going, did, did you even know what was going on? Um, and she used this as an opportunity to say, yeah, I know. I, you know and to say, um, this situation wouldn't have happened if we didn't have a vocation shortage. The church is in real trouble. It's my family. I want to support it. We need it. And the obvious thing to do is to have women priests. And if Pope Francis comes here, I will tell him that. Or when he comes here, I will tell him that if I get to Boy, meet Which she presumably will, will. Who could possibly have foreseen that? Yeah. Uh. And then, of course, and it, it just I mean, it, 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 the whole thing caused the Archbishop of Dublin to bare his teeth, which I have never known to happen. Right. And um, he's very, and, and, you know, and he kind of issued a very strong statement about this. And, and look, we think Dermot's pretty tough behind closed doors, but nobody has ever known him to do anything publicly tough in this way okay and and of course people especially in the media have reacted a bit like you know when you're in school and you have a teacher who's nice and then one day they get really angry and they shout at you and you feel kind of betrayed and uh-huh. um, as opposed to the teachers who were stern from day one and then you realize they have a nice they have a good heart below uh-huh. it all you know but when <laughs> you're the one who's you know you know that's that's the sensible thing to of your teacher be tough Right. And then let people see your humanity if you start off as nice and then have to bang the desk and shout yeah they will hate you yeah. they see you as betraying them yeah <laughs> And and this is what's happened so who knows what so you have this kind of element within the church saying we're going to tell pope francis what's what when he comes over here um so it's uh we we'll see we'll okay see.
1: Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to watch. Um, I, I do remember the last when uh, when Benedict went to England and, uh, you know, there were all these predictions. They were going to eat him alive and, you know, everybody's going to hate him. And, and uh, I thought, well, with Benedict, it was like he had this unjust repus- reputation as, you know, God's Rottweiler. And, yeah. uh, and it was like, that's totally not who he is. And people are perpetually surprised to keep discovering that he's still not God's Rottweiler. (laughs) He is who has always been this very sweet, gentle man, you know. And uh, so it was a pleasure to watch that unfold. And I'm hoping to see something very similar. Because the great thing about Francis is, um, and, and one of the most, to me, most mysterious things about Francis is that he's mysterious to anybody. Uh, I've never understood why people are baffled by him. I'm constantly hearing from people how he's confusing me. And it's like, all you have to know about that guy is summarized in the words he has preached good news to the poor. That's that's his entire apostolate summed up. You know, that's his whole papacy. This is not even hard to me. Uh, But people are still confused by him. But I think, you know, we will see that once again because that is always who he is everywhere he goes all the time and he will be that in ireland as well
2: yeah i think so yeah
1: cool um, so um well um uh, we're we're just about out of time but i wanted to ask if you had uh, any last any last thoughts on um uh you know what you see for the church uh in ireland uh in the coming years
2: well, I try to be optimistic about it and to be realistic at the same time. I do see some good stuff. Um, firstly, I would say, well, firstly, about the papal visit. I was in England when Benedict visited just afterwards, about a month later, well, actually exactly a month later. Uh, my local church in Manchester received the relics, such as they were, there were very few of them, of, um, of Cardinal Newman. And at that mass... Um, the priest, who was an oratorian, gave this wonderful homily in which he talked about how in 1982, when John Paul visited England, he said the English church dropped the ball. They, they, they did not take advantage of the situation. They did not treat this as the opportunity they had to catechize and re-evangelize and enervate the church there. Mm-hmm. And he said, but back then, he said, he didn't say it to blame them. He said, back then, they didn't have the catechism. The the CTS, the the bishops' publishers, basically was moribund. The internet didn't exist. The Code of Canon Law hadn't come out yet. All manner of things that the Church now has and can use, and never mind, you know, the whole way of thinking about things now. Things like I mean, things like the UCAT and stuff like that. All that kind of stuff. None of that existed back then. Yeah. It exists now. Yeah. And I think in some ways that's applicable to Ireland now. Where we go, John Paul came in seventy nine. I didn't do the church any good. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a great moment, but did it help anything? I don't think it did. If anything, it was a last hurrah before things went completely downhill. Right. Um, Francis has come into a different situation, but the church is—it's not quite a rock bottom, but you can see the trajectory it's on. Right. That's an opportunity to build. Yeah. Um. And and, and in some ways, we've had some good stuff. You know, uh, our—I don't know our current nuncio. I haven't met him yet. Um, the previous one, who was a New Yorker called Charles Brown, he's now nuncio to, to Albania, um, was an absolutely wonderful guy. He was, Benedict picked him against the background of the state more or less forcing the previous nuncio to go home, against the background of the state closing our embassy to the Vatican, um, and perhaps more importantly against the background of um, Benedict's letter to the Irish church following um, his uh, visitation when three cardinals came over sent over to investigate the state of the irish church and what they found wasn't good and they produced this document we've nobody's ever seen the document except in rome but we've seen kind of a summary of it and they criticized everything from seminaries to schools to a state of unacknowledged heresy in the general population all sorts of things they raised serious problems there and i think charles brown had been sent in Um, Because Benedict didn't take him from the Diplomatic Corps. He wasn't from the Secretary of State. He was from the CBF. He was one of his doctrine people. And he was sent in, who happened to be this smiling, affable New Yorker of Irish-American extraction, who could come in and firstly reconnect Irish parishes, give them something to be happy about, link them with Rome and show them that Rome wasn't this terrible draconian place. Of course, it's got its failings, but it was good there as well. But he also, and I think this was his big job, aside from that, was to pick good bishops. And there's our we we have 26 dioceses, and I think now roughly 10 of the bishops are people who were picked by by Brown. Mm -hmm. And most of them are solidly pastoral people. Most of them are good, are seriously smart people. They just seem to be, in the main, good guys and the kind good. of people who can make a difference on the ground good so i have i mean look i'm not going to comment on the bishops in general I and mean, in my experience my experience of of the bishops is that they're decent people but some of them aren't necessarily the most should we say energetic i think that's probably a fair way of putting it you know um but the, the, this last 10 or so the brown picked in particular um are good and i think If they can start generating vocations and turning things around, I think they'll give good leadership and our diocese will have smaller teams, but they could be good ones. And if that happens, you can deal with that as long as we're honest and say it's a 10%, but you start with that 10% and there's still about 70 or 80% who's basically, they're not on board, but they're open to persuasion. Right. You know, that's something you can work with.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And that is a hopeful sign. And, you know, we I mean, the church has come back from, you know, previous moments of laxness and and so forth uh, in in other places. And, you know, it's if we're if we're open to the Holy Spirit, it can happen. So here's hoping for Ireland. Uh, And I want to thank you. Uh, so much, Greg Daly, for for being on Connecting the Dots today. You've been listening to Connecting the Dots. I'm your host, Mark Shea, and we'll be back again next time to talk about life, the universe, and everything from a Catholic perspective. Until then, have a fantastic summer. Bye.
0: Bye. Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We want to help others, especially in places of strife, such as the Holy Land, where Christianity is dwindling by the day. But how to help? Here's an easy way. Buying products through the Holy Land Gift Shop. Every product you purchase at myfranciscan.org shop helps Christians support their families and stay in the Holy Land. Olivewood, embroidery, spices, and many more authentic products from the Holy Land are available right now at myfranciscan.org shop. The Holy Land Gift Shop, bringing the Holy Land home. Thank you for listening to Breadbox Media. Find more about us at breadboxmedia.com.